0: Greetings and salutations from Times Square, crossroads of the world. This is the Muni Lowdown produced by DebtWire Municipals, where we talk about this week's most interesting stories in the municipal bond market. And I am your host, Young Lim, desk editor at DebtWire Municipals. Welcome. It is Tuesday, February 4th, 2020. My name is Young Lim. Once again, this is DebtWire Municipals, our weekly podcast. Today, we've got DebtWire reporter Simone Barrabo, who looks at Florida's Virgin Trains 2019 ridership, which was short of a 2017 projection. DebtWire's Chuck Stanley discusses the New York Transportation Authority's plans on bringing $8 billion in debt in fiscal year 20. And Chuck also talks about the U.S. Congressional Budget Office and their report on transportation and water infrastructure public-private partnerships, better known as P3s. So welcome, everybody. And Chuck, let's start with you. You'll be talking about the uh, New York MTA, their plans to issue about $8 billion in debt in 2020, and the authority embarks on a $51 billion five-year capital plan. So Chuck, you wrote that story about the MTA. They plan to be pretty active in the debt market this year. How much borrowing does this authority plan to take on?
1: Thanks, Young. Uh, a couple of weeks ago now, MTA management said it expects the authority to bring roughly $8.2 billion worth of debt to market this year. That's about 10% more than in 2019, and a significant portion of that is likely to come in the form of bonds. That should generate significant interest from the muni market if overall supply continues to be constrained this year.
0: And how is the MTA going to use the proceeds?
1: Well, the majority of the debt is expected to go towards refinancing of existing obligations. So despite the increase in overall borrowing, the MTA plans on taking on about $2 billion in new debt obligations which is actually down from $5.4 billion in 2019. A lot of the remaining borrowing will be used to redeem outstanding bond anticipation notes. These are shorter-term notes that are issued periodically by the MTA in anticipation of upcoming spending to make sure that the authority has the cash it needs to pay down contracts for capital projects. Usually, the authority will then sell a larger tranche of long-term debt in the form of bonds in order to buy out multiple issues of the notes.
0: And you said bond anticipation notes, which are better known as bans. All right. So uh, let us tell me um, a a little bit more about how this borrowing fits into the MTA's overall financial situation.
1: Sure. The MTA now has about $41 billion in outstanding bond debt. And it's on the verge of entering into a five-year $51 billion capital improvement plan that was approved last year. This includes the extension of the Second Avenue subway line, a long overdue signal modernization that is hoped to improve service across New York City's subway system, and a number of other capital improvements. So we can expect the authority to continue to be very active in debt markets in the coming years. A lot of that borrowing is going to be backed by revenue from a congestion tolling program set to go into place for much of Manhattan next year. The MTA is also hoping to reduce its cost through a major reorganization plan. And of course, it's going to be paying down some of its outstanding debt as it matures. So overall, MTA management expects this, its outstanding debt to grow by about $6 billion by 2025.
0: And that seems to be the big litmus test, the congestion pricing plan. So I think the whole uh, nation is looking forward to that, see how that goes. But uh, thank you, Chuck, for that. And Chuck, you've got double duty today. So why don't you hold on, take a break, and uh, we'll come back to you in a few minutes on the report on the P3s. Sounds good. Thanks. All right. Simone, how are you down there?
2: I'm doing very well, thank you. All
0: right, and uh, you're in Miami, and I heard there was a big football game on Sunday. A (laughs) game? You weren't even aware of it. It's called the Super Bowl. It was played two days ago in Miami. (laughs)
2: Uh, I I, I might have heard something about it, but I think, honestly, the first time was from you a a couple weeks ago. That was when I first realized it was uh, going to be in Miami, so... um,
0: (laughs) Yes. <laughs> All right, I'm going to make a note. Simone is not a football fan. Okay. So anyway, <laughs> so let's talk about the Florida Virgin Trains and you're going to you wrote about them and the trains have been ru- up and running for about a year now. So how does ridership look like? So in
2: 2019, it saw a million riders. And whether or not that's good, it depends on who you ask. The company says that that's great. It's almost double the prior year. But if you look at a 2017 analysis, it's less than half of the riders they were projecting to have at this point.
0: So then why the miss?
2: The company says that they started a bit later than expected, so really the better comparison is to look at 2018, where they would have almost but still not hit the target. And as recently as April 2019, they were still projecting that they'd reach the 2017 estimates for ridership in 2023. Early ridership figures are notoriously hard to predict, so they're saying they need three or four years to stabilize.
0: So how safe is this bet?
2: I mean, it's very hard to make trains profitable. If you look at the subway systems in New York or DC or really anywhere in the country, or if you look at Amtrak. And this is different in that it's private, but that doesn't automatically boost ridership. And the other thing is that the train is in South Florida. Right now it runs from Miami to Palm Beach and soon it'll run to Orlando, but we really have a car culture here.
0: What do you mean by that, like car culture?
2: To give you an example, I moved down here in 2010. And the day before I came down, I was watching some dumb true crime TV show instead of what may have been the Super Bowl that day. I don't know if it was planning or not. And the police are describing trying to find some guy at his sister's house. And the sister said he went out for a walk. And the detective says something like, We knew she was lying. No one goes for a walk in Miami. <laughs> Right. And then I came down here from New York City without a car and I planned on getting one. I I knew I needed to get one, but I figured I could just use public transportation and taxis for a couple of months. And it went really badly for me. Like I, I needed to get a car right away. The public transportation system, it was slow, It was unreliable. It just didn't work. It's not like being in New York at all. Which is all by way of, saying, getting people to move out of their cars and people who can afford $17 tickets on routes between Palm Beach and Miami, largely commuter routes, almost certainly have cars. That may be a challenge. And going to Orlando, say you're going on a Disney vacation, if you have small kids, what do you do about car seats for getting to and from hotels if you're planning on staying off-site? Or if you want to have any flexibility with what you do. There are all of these impediments that makes it so that as cool as the rail may be, and I've taken it, the trains are super nice. Riders may want to stick to their cars.
0: Wait, hold on someone. I'm gonna ask you one last question about your actual experience with it. But you just said you said a lot of things there. You said the tickets were seventeen dollars and that, that doesn't sound cheap. Is there any sense that the price will change?
2: Yeah, according to projections, the short range tickets prices are gonna to rise to thirty dollars a ticket. Wow. Right, which if people are at all price sensitive, that's another hurdle. And again, the trains are nice. We went on once for the Polar Express, which is a Christmas event with actors. And I could totally see how it would be easy to sit with your laptop and get work done on your commute when people aren't singing about hot chocolate, which is what was happening then. And commuting here can be rough, even though Fort Lauderdale isn't that far, far from Miami, half an hour with no traffic, you can easily double or triple that even reverse commuting, if there's an accident or if there's rain or if the traffic just decides to go slow, which it sometimes does for no apparent reason. So there's definitely an advantage of having a high-speed rail, but whether it's worth the billions it costs to build the train is an open question.
0: So overall, it sounds like you had a, like you said, the seats were nice. Overall, you had a fairly decent experience on the Virgin train?
2: Yeah, you know, I took it last weekend as well. It's really fast it's really nice i went with a friend of mine up to palm beach Mm -hmm. with my two-year-old but you know it ended up being not having car seats was a problem when we got there we could have driven i have a car i thought the restaurant we were planning to go to was closer than it was and i hadn't taken a car seat so we couldn't take a uber or anything so that was a fun trek with a two-year-old and i also when i got to the station i accidentally parked in a municipal lot that's right next to the train lot And they locked down the stairs and the elevators over the weekend, so when I tried to get back into it and I didn't realize that the stairs and the elevators would be locked, it was difficult to get back into, and it's not in the nicest part of town. And it's really expensive. Mm. Without discounts for the three of us, the round trip would have cost $200 for an hour and 10 minutes train ride each way.
0: Wow. I mean
2: for the three of us, but that's, you know, that's the price of a plane ticket. Yeah. And the cars are super nice. You get free water bottles. Mm-hmm. When my daughter realized her father wasn't there in the station and started screaming, "I want daddy!" <laughs> someone came, <laughs> which was awesome. Someone came over and brought her a coloring book, which was really nice. Mm. Um so, you know, it's it's a very nice trip. It's just expensive, and, you know, there's going to be a subset for people for whom it's practical and a subset for people for whom it's not practical. And the very end of my trip was dropping my friend off at – who, by the way, paid for her tickets at our place, and this loops back to the Super Bowl. There were some Super Bowl events going on. And so I didn't even end up avoiding the hellish traffic, and I didn't (laughs) drop my friend who, as I say, paid for her trip off at her apartment. I dropped her off like half a mile away because uh, we had been circling for a while. So um, this is all by way of saying, you know, you you still have to, there aren't many stations, you still have to get to the stations. It's amazing in a lot of ways, but there are some challenges that it faces.
0: Wow, interesting. Well, you sort of aptly described the title of this podcast, "Crazy Train," which I think it sounds sounds like a little bit. So, all I right. No,
2: know that was it. That's awesome.
0: <laughs> all right. Well, thank you, Simone, for the work on Virgin Train. Thank you uh, for surviving Super Bowl weekend and the train. <laughs> okay, we'll talk. Right, to we'll talk to you again. All right, uh, Chuck, you still there? I'm here, young. Yeah. All right, welcome back. Let's end up. With your um, story, uh, you talk, you're going to be talking about the Congressional Budget Office and the public-private partnerships. Again, it's a P3. So tell us a little bit about that report.
1: Sure. So the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office produced a report in January looking at the use of public-private partnerships, also called P3s, uh, specifically for transportation and water infrastructure projects. So infrastructure deals where a private company is brought in to manage the execution of the project, often from the design phase all the way through completion. In the case of transportation projects, the most common arrangement is for a developer to design the project, manage construction, and then turn it over to a public entity to operate and maintain, sometimes referred to as a design-build contract. For water and sewer projects, the report finds that it's more common for the private firm to be tasked with improving operations at an existing facility. A couple of the interesting findings that jumped out at me from the report were, one, that despite the ascendance of public-private partnerships, uh, they've only accounted for between 1% and 3% of spending on highway transit and water projects over the past 30 years. The other is that on the whole, the P3 model has generally been successful at making good on its primary selling point, which is driving down costs and shortening construction times. The report says both build times and costs are modestly lower across the P3 projects examined by the CBO compared with traditional government contracting projects.
0: But Chuck, obviously that success is not uniform, right? I mean, we know that a number of P3 projects that have had poor results.
1: Absolutely. And some of those poor results have driven changes in the structure of these deals. For example, the recession of 2008-2009 hit toll-backed highway projects really hard and led to a number of bankruptcies for the private partners that were relying on toll revenue in these projects. So since then, it's become much more common for privately financed P3 transportation deals to rely on direct payments to the private partner from state and local governments, rather than toll revenue or other unreliable
0: revenue sources. So, Chuck, are there any other benefits to issuers from choosing a P3 model rather than a more, let's say, traditional development model?
1: There is a benefit to states or localities with budgetary limits or legal constraints when it comes to securing financing for these projects. Uh, Private financing through a P3 model often offers a faster funding option than issuing public debt for those municipalities and districts. And in those cases, the upfront financing costs are usually lower for the public entity. But those initial savings wind up going back to the private partner over the course of the project, so the overall financing cost winds up being roughly the same. In the case of water districts, the CBO found that bringing in a private operator also tended to lower operating costs and improve compliance with environmental regulations.
0: All right, Chuck, I got one last question for you. So, tell me, if there's is there a bottom line takeaway from how effective the P3 model is from, let's say, an issuer standpoint?
1: I think the bottom line is that the P3 model does appear to offer some efficiency benefits over the traditional public infrastructure model where multiple contractors are bought in to oversee different aspects of a project's development. And a lot of that advantage seems to come from having a single developer overseeing all aspects of the project and therefore having better visibility into potential challenges at various phases of the project. P3s have also been seen as a way to shift risk for large projects away from taxpayers and onto a private partner. That's been true in a lot of cases, but as I kind of hinted at before, we've also seen a move away from some of the practices that leave private partners with a disproportionate amount of the risk. In particular, there seems to be less appetite for projects that bring in private financing secured by toll revenue. And that's probably attributed to a lack of appetite from the private sector side of the equation because of the risk uh, that was shown during the Great Recession to those private operators. Overall, the report found that placing more risk on state or municipal partners, generally in the form of guaranteed payments, tends to add to the overall stability of these projects.
0: All right. Sounds good. Thanks a lot, Chuck. Thanks. All right. My thanks to Chuck Stanley for a double dose of having two stories, uh, Simon Barabo reporting from, I'm assuming, sunny Miami. Thank you to our producers, Anthony and Christian, today for uh, making us sound good. But most of all, thank you to our listeners out there who tune in week after week to DebtWire Municipals. We hope all of you have a good day and take care, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Meaning Lowdown with me, your host, Young Lim. If you want to know more, subscribe to DebtWire.com and follow us on social media. Please leave comments, rate, like, and share. Join us next week when we talk about the latest in the municipal bond market.